morning, guys. How's everyone doing? Doing good? Well, welcome. Um, if this is your first time to resonate, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. This is Omid. He's the worship leader here. Can we give it up for our music crew this morning? They're awesome. So good. Uh, well, we're just in the beginning of this brand new series that we're doing that's called Broken Colors, and I broke down what broken color means in a large part about two weeks ago, and that's on a podcast, so you want to listen to that, uh, you can, but just really briefly, broken color comes from um, an art style. It's an idea and a style of art uh, that Impressionists did, like Monet, so basically in like 1820s uh, Paris, art was a very, very uh, popular thing, but a very stagnant thing. The whole point of art was to make it look as real as possible. And you would get a commission as an artist, someone would commission you to do a portrait of them or do some work of literature, something, something or a, a historical moment. These were the things that people were painting and they would pay you and they would go, okay, I want you to make it look as real as possible. Because again, we don't have selfies, we don't have cameras, so I want something that's going to look like me. So they would spend months just, just making these meticulous brushstrokes that wouldn't look like brushstrokes at all. If you looked at the painting, the whole goal was to not even see a single brushstroke. And in the grand tradition of art critiquing itself, some other people came along and they said, no, 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 that's not how it works. And they started walking outside and they started painting the real stuff that was around them. Flowers, sunsets, boat parties. Some of the most famous things, like, um, Sean, do we have that slide of the, uh, yeah, this is the painting by Renee. And you can see, like, none of the brush strokes actually connect. They're broken. But your mind visually puts it all together. And so in a real sense, this, this style of art wasn't like, I want to I show you everything literally, like I don't trust you enough to get the point. This trusts you enough to get the point and goes one step further and causes you to react and goes, what do you see here? So for the first time, art is asking fresh questions. And so what we're trying to do um, is use the lectionary, which is this very old book that kind of helps us go through the Bible in a span of three years, and it has different readings for every week, and it pulls from Psalms, from Gospels, from the Old Testament, from all, oh, excuse me, all over the story, and shows you the different layers and how everything connects. But every single verse has its own voice, and they all work to complement each other and to shed light on a single thing. And so we're using these verses to hopefully shed light on what the heck happened the last week. So what we're doing is we're looking really closely at the news cycle. I've been very stressed out, um, but we're looking very, very closely at what's going on in the world, and then we use these old traditional verses to shed light on the new thing that God is doing. And here's the thing we're going to be talking about this morning. You're going to hear me say new over a million times, because um, God is in the business of making all things new. That's the whole point. God is ever moving, always at work, and he's always making things new. But all too often, we kind of get stagnant. We get very stuck. And we don't really trust that God could still be moving, still be working, still be moving in our lives. And so we're going to use all of these different brushstrokes together, and we're going to see what he has to say about what's going on right now. And this morning, we're talking about the ever-expanding universe, which is going to be fun. We'll talk about theories of time, kairos, and chronos. Uh, we'll read a lot of scripture, um, so buckle in, and, uh, and we'll have a good time. So let me pray before we get into that, and then we'll start. Lord, um, thank you so much uh, just for, for this morning, for the opportunity to be able to uh, talk about what matters most, um, talk about you. And uh, Lord, we, we humbly come uh, we ask that we could learn a little bit more about you, that we'd feel your presence, um, and you'd move us into something greater. Amen. Um, so this week, 
Uh, I turned 30 years old, so I'm officially uh, the owner of my bald head. It works now. So um, I turned 30, and uh, a whole lot of existential crisis stuff happens when you shift into a new decade. Uh, and it wasn't that bad. But the night before I turned 30, I began getting super sentimental, like ultra sentimental, like this is the last cup of coffee I'll have as a 20-year-old. Like just, just awful, like you're just kind of going all over. So um, Chelsea and I are, are packing up the car. Uh, we're loading our dog into the car, uh, which is always a process because he has, he has a plan of escape everywhere you go. I don't know what his plan is, but he always wants out. So we're trying to corral him into the car. We're shoving his bed into the car. We're about to go on a long drive. Uh, we put everything in, and I go, oh, shoot, I forgot my notebook. Now, I have been doing this pastor gig for almost two years now, and I calculated up in my super sentimental moment, and this is actually my 100th sermon. And in that, no, 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 no that's, not, that's not to congratulate, but um, this is my 100th sermon. It's going to be my worst one. No, um, so I have put in this notebook all 100 of these ideas. And in this notebook, I, I, I have recorded from the beginning when I first started this. It's like cute, super thick. It's all dog-eared. I've got post-its in there. It just it looks like a mess, but it's where all my ideas are. And I was like, shoot, I forgot my notebook. I'm not going to be able to write my sermon if I don't have the notebook. So I run back upstairs. I grab the notebook. And then I quickly uh, go, and I still have to get Baloo in the car, my dog. So I put him in the car, put the notebook on top of the vehicle, and then get in the car and roll away. And it isn't until Chelsea and I stop at a Starbucks that I go, oh, where's my Where's my notebook? Where's my notebook? Existential crisis, end of my 20s, notebook's gone. I'm losing it. <laughs> so we go back, and she's more upset than I am. She's like, you're not going to have a job. Get back. So we, we were driving around the neighborhood, and we're trying to find this notebook. And the whole time, I'm just trying to literally process, like, what's going on here? Like, how did this happen? And, and, and it's in these moments that you truly can't process what's going on until, like, a good couple days afterwards. We weren't able to find the notebook, but I was left with this idea of like, I, this, this is a true moment of growth. Like, you, we all have things that we hold on to that we think are so important and that we just can't get through it without this because I've always done it this way. This is how I've always done it, and I can't, if I mess with this system, everything's going to break apart. But the truth is, if we really believe this God stuff, he's always in the business of making things new. And when I lost it, I went, dang it, Lord, this is a sermon illustration <laughs> because it literally lines up with what we're talking about today. God is not stagnant. God is not dead. God is a living thing, and he is ever expanding. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but the universe literally is growing. I don't know if you know this, but Hubbard discovered this in 1925. He figured out that the universe is still expanding, and now, through, thanks to science and NASA and all sorts of amazing technology, we are able to see that the universe itself is actually getting bigger, and it's getting bigger by a rate of 44.7 miles per second. Just to give you a little perspective, that's from Orange County and back every single second. The universe is growing out, 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 out like this. And so if you are a Bible literalist, like you take everything literally that's in the Bible, you look at that first chapter in the Bible and you look at creation in seven days and you say God literally created this in seven days, if you're aligning yourself with that kind of theology, then you actually have to look at the universe and what's it, what it's doing and literally go, God is still up to something. He's still working. He's still creating. And when we actually expand our worldview and our minds and, and let more in, we are actually aligning ourselves with that version of creation that God is doing. He's ever expanding, and so should we. The Christian faith should always be a goal to keep going. I want to know more about God. I want to know God 
deeply. And the, the well is so deep. The more we try and push into God, the more you're going to find that's more mysterious, more quirky, more weird. It's, it's an ever-expanding, beautiful faith. And I think all too often, unfortunately, we kind of treat it like it's, it's this done thing. Like we have the Bible, we know the gospel, we've said the words, we're in, okay, let's go to church, done. But there's so, so much more. You see, there's this huge tradition, even within the scriptures themselves, of critiquing and expanding and going further and further and further and further. And it largely starts here. So this is our first, um, our first uh, verse this morning, and it's a bit of a uh, toughie. So let's go through this. Um, this is out of Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Uh, it says, from there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, a Canaanite woman. So this is important. It's a Canaanite woman, so it is not a person of the Jewish faith. Comes up um, from those territories, came out and shouted, show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession, but he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, send her away. She keeps shouting after us. So she's just relentlessly like pouring on to Jesus. And Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep the people of Israel, only to the lost sheep and the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, and this is where it gets tough, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs uh, eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. And Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then, her daughter was healed. Now, this in theological circles and uh, in seminaries everywhere is what we call a big whoopsie. <laughs> this verse is very, very difficult. It's not the kind of thing we want to talk about in church. It's not the kind of thing you're going to read at a wedding, like the time Jesus called a woman a dog. Like, that's, not, that's not the greatest move in the world. And if we look at that just on its own as a single brushstroke, right, in this whole broken color thing, if we just read this verse and you take this completely out of context, you're going to go like, wow, Jesus said that to her? That's... Why are we following this guy? But what's beautiful is it's not always, it's pure speculation to think that like Jesus changed his mind in this moment, but that's certainly what it looks like, right? At, at first in the verse, he says, I've only come for the lost sheep of Israel, meaning I'm only here for my people. And then as she progresses and just relentlessly keeps knocking at the door and going like, no, 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 you don't get it. I want in on this and my daughter needs help and you need to step in and help, and Jesus goes, that's it. You got me. You changed my mind. That's pretty big stuff. And that's not in there to say that, like, Jesus changed his mind so we can, you know, pray, we'll change his mind, rah, 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 rah. That's more for us to see a model of what true discipleship, true life with Christ looks like. Because if he does that, then we are called to actually do that, too. When something comes into our universe and changes something, and it's good news, it has the right to change our minds. It has the right to mess with us. It has the right to play with us. We can become something new. Because here's the verse. This is out of Revelation. Sean, we have that, that line. And he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So what's super interesting about this verse, this is in Revelation. Whew, it's a good read. Um, end of the Bible. This is the end of all the scripture, and the scriptures include this notion that even at this end point, I am making all things new. It's this constant refresh, keep going, ever expanding thing. And in this verse with this Canaanite woman, we see Jesus literally expand his worldview to say you're included too. And this is early, early on. 
We're not even in Acts yet. And in Acts, all sorts of things start happening. We've been talking for the past three weeks about how this church just sort of like opened up the floodgates and said, Gentiles, you're in here too, and everyone's in here too, and there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven, and everyone is welcome, and they're throwing the doors wide open. But it begins here because they saw Jesus do this. I don't think you understand the, the, both the racial like uh, conundrum that he's in in this moment and the sexist conundrum that he's in this moment. In this, this culture, in this day, even just to talk to a woman was a big deal. And even more than that, this is, this is terrible, and it's true. It, when they did a census and they would count up all the people to see how many people were living in a certain region, women were not even counted, as if to say they don't even count. And here Jesus is, and his mind is getting changed by a Canaanite woman. This is big, big stuff. And we should be talking about verses like this all the time. Like, forget the greatest hits, John 3.16, woohoo. But this is crazy stuff. And if we can get into this mode, a lot of stuff is going to shift and change. And we heard it in that first psalm, and um, Danielle read, uh, it's, it's this, this beautiful picture of sing to the Lord a new song, right? What's glorious about a new song? So I, I, lead, a, um, I lead a chapel uh, at Pacifica High School, and I lead worship there. Um, and I grew up in a worship tradition that was like very like we, we play the same songs, right? And that if you, if you grew up in church, you've heard of those like God of wonders beyond our guilt, just like all over and over and over again. You're like, stop playing that dang song. Um, but I grew up in this tradition where like it was good to get to know these songs. These songs kind of lived in you and you memorized them and you knew them and all that good stuff. Now, take it to couple millennials in this generation, and you go, and if you play a song twice, even twice in a week, like in a row, they are going to call you on that thing, because it is not within their nature at all to listen to something twice. We are coming up on a cultural moment where things are just being consumed at a rapid pace, and there's no sort of repeat. Do you remember like when you were a kid, and you could watch the same movie over and over and over and over again? It's just that does not exist anymore. And in a very real way, that's a very biblical tradition. Sing to the Lord a new song. And that, that beautiful psalm includes like all of this, the imagery of like, we, we got harps and you can do it with trumpets. And it's like, be creative and be awesome. Do crazy, wild things. It even describes the whole sea and everything in it is resounding. And all I can think of is under the sea and the little mermaid. That's the, the, the giant picture, right? Of just, we can be creative in this stuff. Like we can have fun with this. We don't have to do the same things over and over and over and over again. We can bring in new, fresh stuff, and we can experiment, and we can have fun, because faith is supposed to be a joyous thing. It is not supposed to be a dead and stagnant thing. And that is how the book of Psalms actually works at its core. If you were to read Psalms, it's this up and down, just like roller coaster of emotion. It's just, to, to do a reference, and it was my birthday this week, so give me this one. It's the Chris Caraba of all that no one knows who that is. That's Dashboard Confessional. Anyway, we'll, we'll cut that from the podcast. Um, it's this up and down, crazy emotional experience where there are these laments, and there's David just crying out to God, saying, why are you doing this? And here's the cool thing. The Psalms were originally five different books. And somewhere along the line, we compiled them all into what we now know as the Psalms. Now, five is a super significant number for a religious text to be. And here's what happened. We have Torah that's always been there, since the beginning of, of Judaism. Thank you, Amid, for doing that. This feedback is happening. Um, 
We have Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, and that includes the law. Like, these are the things that we need uh, to know to get along with each other. These are the things we need to know if someone steals your goat or if you slept with your brother's wife. All this stuff, like, it's all in there, right? But it's arduous, and it's hard. And so along the line, these great leaders of the early, 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 early forms of Judaism said, we need a way and a template to help people understand how to interact with these texts in a healthy way. And even more than that, we need them to understand how to interact with God. And so there's five books, and they all cover. And the way that that's built is to sort of show us that this is a new Torah. That if this first Torah is all about the law and how to live and the construction you have to do to build a good life, then the Psalms is an instruction manual on how to pray through that life, how to experience God. And the good news for us is that it includes crazy stuff like laments. Laments are literally protests to God. So when something awful happens in the world, and for David, this is, there's crazy stuff happening to David all the time. There's ones in there where he's being chased by 12,000 people. And I don't know if you ever had a day like that, but when you do, you're kind of going to lament to God what's going on here, right? But that's recorded. That protest is in there, and that's such good news because that means that is the legitimate response. When something awful happens, we are allowed to protest. We're allowed to say why. We're joining in the great biblical tradition of asking God why. Why is this happening? Because the awesome part about when we do that is not that God is going to just shift everything and magically make it all better. But when we, when we do that, when we let that out, when we release that to God, oftentimes we'll find ourselves walking in a better direction. He's going to use this in different ways. I've used this example before, but it, it's so good. Um, this uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner tells this story um, to just kind of describe what prayer is like and, and how prayer works. And it, it works like this. There's, this. there's this old man who decides that he doesn't want to live in the town that he grew up anymore. He's done with all these people. I'm done with my family. I'm done with everything. I want a new life. I want a new everything. So he leaves his town and he goes and he falls asleep, and as the legend has it, he takes off his shoes because he's going in a certain direction, and he knows there's, like this, the, there's another village down the road, and I'm going to go make my life there, and it's going to be so much better than it is here. So he puts his shoes there, and he, in the middle of the night, God, and they're pointing in the direction of the new village, and in the middle of the night, God does this tricky little thing where he takes the shoes, and he turns them right back around, right back to where the man had come from, from his village. And so the man wakes up all weepy-eyed and is just like, okay, and then and I know I'm on my path. He goes back into the village, and he's like, this village is way better than my village. And he's walking through, and he goes, and, and, and he goes to what he thinks, like, he's like, oh, this is looking familiar. Maybe, maybe my house is in this village, too. Like, maybe it's the same exact layout. I'd love to go see that. So he goes, and he goes, oh, remarkable. They have the same house here, but it's so much better. And then his wife opens the door, thinking, surely, this is another person, and she's so much better. And they walk in, and then his family is there, and they've all prepared a meal, and he's like, this family's so much better than my family. And he just keeps going through his own life, but all of a sudden, God has switched the shoes around. And I think that's an awesome way to participate in prayer. Sometimes it's not just that God is going to magically do that, but God will shift our shoes around. Prayer can help us see the good in things like we've never had before. Prayer can be participation. Prayer can move us into better ways of seeing things. And when we do pray and we do this, God does really fun, creative stuff in our lives. 
It's when you're able to look back and go like, oh, I see all the turns that he had me go on. And at the time, I thought, what is going on in this mess? And then you've arrived and you go, oh, wow. I can't believe this. And God has been here all along. It's creative stuff. And in a world that we're living in right now, where the news cycle, trust me, I've been having to do this series, it's just berating at all times. And bad news gets more clicks, so they're going to put more bad news out there. And this is true, I've, I've said this before. Uh, psychologists have actually found that bad news will immediately mark your brain with an image. You will, when you take in bad news, it is just seared in there instantly. That's why we're like kind of addicted to it. And when we see it, we, just, we instantly remember it. But good news actually takes 15 seconds of contemplating it to actually receive the same mark that bad news does on our brains. Isn't that crazy? So when we experience something good, we actually have to take time to slowly let that seep into us and really, really process what's going on. What's going on here? Because all too often, these good news stories are going to the bottom. So this week, what I did, there's all sorts of terrible things that happened in our world that I could be talking to you about, but I tried to relentlessly search for good news, and I found some remarkable, remarkable stuff. Let's put some side-by-side -side headlines here. So we've all heard that um, in Austin, Texas, we, the, the Waffle House uh, shooter, it's a terrible thing, comes in with a gun and, and starts just open firing in a Waffle House. Uh, but there's this awesome guy who came and he tackled him and he took the gun from him, saving all of these lives. And now the Waffle House hero is don donating all of his fundraising proceeds to the victim's families. That's crazy good news. That's creatively moving against a bad headline and shifting it into something new, turning it into good news. You guys remember uh, a couple weeks ago in a Starbucks, there were two African-American men sitting there doing nothing and they got arrested because they're on suspicion of everything. We see racist motives all over the place. It was a terrible, terrible thing. But now, we go to the next slide, these men are settling with Starbucks for a dollar each and promising 200,000 for a young entrepreneur's program. Is that not insane? Like, this is good news. They created something new. Out of something awful, out of hurt, they somehow were able to turn those shoes around. We're somehow able to corral that into good news. But here's the thing, guys. We need to actively participate with headlines like this. I'm saying in a real practical way. Give it a like. Give it a retweet. Click through it. Do stuff. Where your eyeballs go matter. <laughs> like, literally, you will drive what goes out there into the media streams. And if we can actually focus on good stuff, we're going to see more good stuff. Here's what we know. Good news, especially as Christians, this is the whole deal. Good news changes lives, changes lives. Bad news can destroy a life, but good news can actually change our minds. Just like Jesus with that Canaanite woman, it can actually physically change us for more and better good. And in this long tradition, it, it sort of like exemplifies right here in the book of Acts. So this is our second lectionary text for the day. I'm going to read it for us. Um, this comes out of Acts 10, and this is known as like the second Pentecost. So Pentecost is this big, crazy experience where right after uh, Jesus ascends, all of his followers are hanging out in a room, and the Holy Spirit sends upon them, and they start speaking in tongues. They start speaking in the languages of the people around. People are amazed, like, how did that person know my language? I'm from a far off town. And they're like, well, this is happening, and God is moving, and you can be baptized right now. So this is happening uh, after this happens. Peter then 
gets a vision from God, and he says, I want you to go to the home of this Gentile, and I want you to pray with him. And Peter goes, what? Because this is not happening. Like, to even step foot in a Gentile home made you ritually unclean, made you unable to enter into the temple, thus unable to be forgiven. This is big new stuff. Even to step in there would have made you marked. And he steps through the home, and even more so, he starts going, and he says this. This is my favorite line in all scripture. He says, I'm starting to believe that God's kingdom is truly for everyone. I'm starting to believe, which is a remarkable step of faith. Peter did not have all the answers there. He didn't have it all figured out. It wasn't a certain thing for him. But when he steps through there, he goes, you know what? I'm just going to admit this. I'm not all there yet. I'm starting to believe. But that does not prevent Peter from then sharing the gospel with these people. And so right after that, he goes on this awesome sermon. He gets the whole gospel account in there, basically sums up the Old Testament and ties it into Jesus and says all of this is kind of pointing in Jesus' direction. He's come for the salvation of all your sins, and I'm starting to believe that you're a part of that too. I'm starting to believe. How much better would our lives be if we could truly move forward when we're just starting to believe? If we would allow people the space to go like, I know we don't have all this figured out yet, but go Run, have fun with this. Have a blast. And so Peter says this, um, or this, this is the account after he does this sermon. So he says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, this is really important because last week we did this whole story about a eunuch and how a eunuch is one of the first Gentiles to ever be saved, and, and Philip goes and he sees them. And the same line is in both of these, just a chapter apart. And it's that who's to stand in the way? Who's to stand in the way? I just think that's interesting that that's in both. And if it's in both, we should pay attention to it. For the first time they begin to ask the question, oh, wait, who's standing in the way of us baptizing? Because baptism is a big deal in the Jewish faith. It's a huge deal. It was, it was a, it's a Jewish thing, guys. It's been around before we started doing it. But here's the deal. When you got baptized, there were only two ways that you could convert into Judaism. And the first step was that you had to be circumcised. So do we, do we have that um, picture of the temple? Don't worry, <laughs> just the temple. Um, where's... Thank you. Um, we'll not go to a picture. Um, so basically, this is the temple. And you can see up here, that's the size of an American football field, right? And then this is the size of the temple. This is a massive, historical, religious place. So when we talk about the temple, it's not just like some little church campus. It's this massive thing, right? Um, and there are people who, what, right here, this is the woman's courtyard. So if you were a female, you were not allowed past into here. But this is truly where all the reckoning happened. This is where the high priest would go in once a year, utter the unnameable name of God, Yahweh, and feel the presence of God upon him. So we have a progression of who's in, who's out, and it, the further we go to the end of the temple, the more exclusive it gets. And out here, we have what's called the Gentiles' courtyard. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted, you believed in this God, and you thought, I need to get right, and I need, I need to forgive, I need to atone for my sins, you would be allowed outside the gate. 
And the only way you could get into the gate was a full conversion, which involved circumcision and then baptism. Once both of those things had happened, in that order, you were allowed to go in. So a lot of people would arrive at the gate, and they'd be like, okay, here's the deal to do it. And they're like, you know, I've always loved it outside the temple. But So there, this was the only space that they could go. And when Peter comes into this thing, he looks at the body of water, and he looks at it, and he goes, wait a minute. Who's to stop us? Who's to stand in the way of us getting baptized? And in this moment, gets rid of one of the hugest barriers to enter into this faith. He says, no, okay, you know, it's not about who's in or who's out. It's not about this cultural thing. Who's to stand in the way? Who's standing in our way? No one's in our way. And so he baptizes all of them in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's this crazy, crazy moment. And it says the high priests that were standing there are just standing there astonished, like mouth agape, going, how? How in the world have they received the same thing that we have received? This is still going on in churches. I just would like to point that out. Who are we standing astonished looking at going, I can't believe they can come in here. I can't believe they can receive this too. This tradition needs to be held on to. The kingdom is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it's not stopping and it hasn't stopped at the end of this book. It's keeping on going and we are a part of that tradition. We constantly need to be on the lookout for the people that we would be astonished if they were ever to be able to come into the presence of God. We need to actively look at those communities and go, yes, more. The kingdom is bigger. The kingdom has a shape, and it's just bigger. That's the movement of the kingdom. For the first time, Peter looks at this, and he starts really taking this story seriously. So in 1981, uh, American Airlines was having a really, really rough go. They were, they were cash poor. They didn't know how to compete with these new cheapo airlines that were coming out that like, if you didn't get a meal, you're basically in a children's seat, but you could pay a really cheap price and you could fly wherever you wanted to, right? And American Airlines had kind of built their brand on we're the luxury line. Like you can come and we have like the best seats and we have the best food and all this kind of stuff, but their ticket prices were like way up here and all of a sudden they realized we're getting, we're getting like, like cheaped out. Like there's no way we can compete with this. So someone came up with this brilliant idea Okay, we need to change, and we need cash, and we need it fast, so why don't we go to our most loyal customers? We can track, we have the data to track who's been flying the most and what businesses they're with, and maybe their business will actually be able to buy the equivalent of like what'll be a bond, but we'll call it the unlimited air pass with two A's, like AA air pass, the unlimited air pass. So what they did is they made it available for $250,000, and they went to some of their most wealthy clients and, and frequent flyers and said, hey, if you'd like to, you can get in on this. $250,000, you will have unlimited airfare for the rest of your life. Mark Cuban was one of the people that jumped on this. A lot of entrepreneurs jumped on this. Some people took out loans just to get this. And here's the thing, it really worked for American Airlines in the short term, but they did not account for were the people who were gonna take this thing very seriously, such as Steve Rothschild. Now, Rothstein. Steve Rothstein bought this air pass for 250,000. He got the accompanying companion pass for $100,000, which means he could fly with him and a partner, whoever he wanted to fly with, anywhere in the world for free. This is how many times he flew. 10,000 flights in 25 years. Now, I broke that down. That's over 400 flights a year. 
100 flights a year. That's like you're flying twice a day sometimes. It's insane. He flew 1,000 flights to New York City, 500 flights to San Francisco, 500 to Los Angeles, 500 to London. The London one is super interesting. He actually went a dozen times in a single month. He went 120 flights to Tokyo, 80 flights to Paris, 80 flights to Sydney, 50 flights to Hong Kong. He flew on to Ontario one time just to eat a sandwich. This man <laughs> knew what he was doing. And so American Airlines in 2007 realized we are losing huge amounts of money on this man. Steve Rothstein is dragging us under the bus. They calculated it up, and with taxes and fees and loss of airfare and all this kind of stuff, he was costing them over a million dollars a year. So American Airlines approached Steve Rothstein and said, you can't keep doing this. We're taking your pass away. He took them to court. He won the first round. But then they found out that Steve Rothstein was literally giving away his companion pass at an airport to strangers. Just like you come up, you sit at the hotel bar. Steve's sitting next to you, and he goes, like, where are you flying? He's like, oh, me too. OK, you want to refund your ticket? You can have my companion pass. You can go for free. He was doing this kind of stuff, and American Airlines was out of their mind. Like, how do we stop him? So they figured out that he was doing that, and they got him through a weird clause, and his pass was revoked. The only thing that he has said on the record about this, besides that he hates the airline now, will never fly it, um, is he said, it was truly an unlimited pass, so I don't understand why people didn't take it seriously. I don't understand why people didn't take it seriously. I think that what Peter and all of them are doing is who's going to stand in the way now? Who, who's going to take it seriously? It's just as big as flying to Ontario for a sandwich, right? All of a sudden, this stuff is very real. And we can baptize. We can do this. You, you are in the kingdom. That's it. But all too often, I think we suffer from this, this complex of a very tiny God. God is way bigger than we give him credit for. And a lot of times, we have a narrative and a view of God that's sort of like a lifeguard or life insurance or worse, uh, a security camera, right? Like it's this ever-rolling thing and God is watching me all the time. That's In Sunday school growing up, I had a Sunday school teacher who was like, God is watching you. Like it was a good thing. It's deeply disturbed me for the rest of my life. But like he's always there and he's about to smote you, right? There's some, some weird, creepy narrative that's creeped in. The truth is he doesn't operate like that. I stumbled on this amazing Twitter story. You may have seen this um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, this is about a security camera, and I thought it worked perfect uh, for what we're talking about this morning. So this is by um, a gentleman. I, I've, I didn't write down his name. I've totally forgotten, but I'll find you the story if you'd like to see it on Twitter. It's just like a tweet stream that he did, and he started getting like loads of attention for it. It went viral, um, and now he's a comedian, which is fantastic news, because uh, this is absolutely hysterical. So it begins. Coworker got his lunch stolen, and they've agreed to let him watch the security camera tape. This is the most excited I've ever been at any job ever. The lunch in question was shrimp fried rice, which means this escalates from a misdemeanor to a felony, no doubt. Case facts. Lunch was in fridge for less than an hour before advantage. No shrimp smell remnants in the microwave or the kitchen area. This was a professional hit, no doubt. <laughs> Holy goodness, he's back. He watched the tape. He knows who did it. So the man whose lunch was stolen sits across from me. The person who stole his lunch sits right next to me. She left for the day before the investigation started. <laughs> According to the video, this psychopath didn't even eat the food. She took it out of the fridge and threw it and buried it in the trash. Her motives remain completely unknown. In lieu of what, she's, in lieu of what he saw on the tape, he has decided not to press the matter anymore. I can't say I blame him. We don't know what this woman's fully capable of. <laughs> 
Points to clarify. He bought the shrimp fried rice around 11.30 a.m., carry out, and put it in the fridge to chill until he takes his lunch at noon. So she had exactly 30 minutes of time window to do what she did with no intention of microwaving the food. <laughs> Update. Okay, so the dude who watched the video with HR, they asked him, what do you want to do about it? He told them that he was solely interested in who did it and that he didn't want to be responsible for someone getting fired. After the charges were dropped, HR sent a company-wide email about him stealing, or about other people stealing people's lunches. She is scheduled to arrive to work in 20 minutes. My blood is on fire. <laughs> she walked into the room, and in the room was dead silent. Dead silent, yet there is a palpable explosive energy pulsing through everyone but her. From the moment she walked in, I've been staring at her. <laughs> Watched her open her email. Now she's clicked on the HR email. Holy goodness, strap in. Here we go. I can't move. I simply cannot move. Anything could happen right now. After seeing the HR email, she said out loud, whoa, someone stole a lunch? Who would do something like that? I may have to run out of this room. <laughs> After she said that, shrimp guy responds, well, yeah, it's not OK to throw someone's food away. We're all about to start screaming. <laughs> she sits. Uh, this gets even crazier. After he says she, after she says that he says that she goes, "Oh, it was your lunch." Beat. She continues, "Well, why would you go to HR about that?" She has simultaneously denied her involvement and called the guy who saved her job a snitch. <laughs> Dude just sighed and went back to work. And after she said what she said, she looked frighteningly calm. <laughs> I'll keep everyone updated if anything else occurs, but all I can say is that everyone in this office, from the janitor to the founder, knows what she did, and she now carries an invisible scarlet letter. <laughs> so I think all too often we are dealing with a version of God that is much like that security tape and that HR guy. But the, the real truth of the matter is, is that is really not how it works. We have a certain linear view of time. We call it chronos. Chronos is where we get the word chronological. And it's how we sort of map out time on a calendar or on a timeline. It's a, it's a linear thing that we can see and we can move forward. That's how we kind of view time. Now, in the scripture, scripture has two different words in the Greek for time. One is chronos, one is kairos. Chronos is the linear sort of thing where we can map it, we can trace it, we can, we can work with it, right? But when they talk about God's version of time, and they talk about time and like a day with you is an eternity, that kind of time, we're talking about kairos. And kairos essentially means deep time. This is the concept that the movie Arrival handles way better than I can explain it. But basically, the way that God views time is not just a straight line like this, but it's like this, just sort of all stacked on each other and all that's there, all laid out before. The way that we kind of walk through and meander life is that God is just getting in the know of what we're doing. And when we do it, that's the first time God's ever known about it. But the deeper truth is that God has already seen everything, everything. And I just look at some of the major regrets I have in my life, like the worst things that I have done. And when they happen, that, you know that feeling, that feeling of guilt and shame and awfulness. And I go, oh, my, how could God ever love me? How could God ever like, take me seriously now, now that I've done this? And the beautiful reality here is he's like, no, 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 you don't get it. I've seen it already. I've always known, and I've always loved you. I've always known, and I've always loved you. I'm making all things new. That's what I'm about. I'm trying to get you to stay here with me and understand that you are a beloved child of God, and I've always known, and I've always loved you. That is what it means to sing a new song. 
He's making all things new. You see, one of the major reasons God wants to get rid of sin, one of the major reasons for Jesus' death on the cross, is that he just does not want you to live in that kind of pain. Shame, sin, hurt, these things are dividers. Like when we have a deep shame, we've done something, you've embarrassed yourself at that restaurant, well, I don't eat at that restaurant anymore. Or I, I messed up with a friend, or they messed up with me, I don't hang out with that friend anymore. Shame and hurt prevent us from going back into the world. But the grand story of Jesus is when he dies on the cross and all of his followers abandon him and Peter even denies him three times, he comes back. He does not let shame, guilt, hurt, anything like that prevent him from coming back into the story and saying, Shalom, peace be with you. Those are his opening words almost every time he appears. Peace be with you. I want you to be right here with me. I want you to remain in me. And that brings us to our final lectionary text this morning, um, which is out of Mark. Do we have those slides, uh, Sean? Final text? No? Okay. Well, the, the whole verse is about remaining in me. God says, I am the vine. Remain in me. And the whole beautiful picture here of making things new, new song, remain in me, God is actually calling us to be remarkably present and in this place right now. Remain in me. See, what's really interesting is the past can only bring up feelings of two things. That's pride and that's guilt or shame, right? That's what the past is for. We either look at it with, with selfish pride and go like, how awesome was I in that moment? Or we look at it and we go like, ooh, how awful was I in the moment? And the future has a tricksy little way of doing the same exact thing where we can get super hopeful in our pride and go like, I'm going to just crush it in the future. And then it also has this really awful sense of dread to it as well if we're not looking forward to what's coming. But the only place that does not connotate those where we can truly be joyful and in the moment is the present. It's remaining, remaining in him. When I lost my precious notebook this week, I just kept thinking how important it was to remember that God is just keep, just keep on reminding, going, no, 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 I'm right here. I know you think all the stuff, all the smart stuff you wrote in that notebook is going to drive you to this conclusion, this conclusion, this conclusion. You have all these cool ideas, and it's so fun. But those are your old ideas. Remain in me. Remain right here. We're always going to be changing. We're always going to be growing. But if we can remain and we can actually just sit in this moment with God, he's going to do miraculous, amazing things for our lives. But we have to remain. And sin and shame and guilt and all of that stuff is a prevention from us remaining in God. It separates us from him, just mentally. And God is saying, I'm making all things new, and I want to get rid of all of that. Remain in me. Let's pray together. Lord God, um, I'm just so grateful that we are able to, uh, to talk about what it means to be present, to remain. And I pray that as we um, approach the communion table, uh, that you would, just, you would bring us into the awareness of your presence in this space, right here, right now. We would experience your goodness and the fact that you're making us new. Every time we approach that table, we're remembering what you did. It makes us new all the time.